So we'll turn the time <clears throat> to Steve Dunk. Come on back up. And those of you who'd like to ask questions, you're welcome to do so. So, so I spoke pretty fast in my presentation. I recognize that I kind of speak very quickly because when I have a lot to get through. So if I'm speaking too quickly during the questions, just slow me down, and I'll try and I'll, I'll try and slow it down a little bit. Had a lot of information to get through, so go ahead, please. Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz. One of the things that you said was that 90% of the oil in Canada is produced by CAP members. That's correct. Now, my question is, the other 10%, mm -hmm. what control is there over how they operate? Because my understanding that on the blood reserve, the companies that are going to be fracking on the reserve are not members of CAP. Okay. I, yeah, I don't know who's fracking in the blood reserve. So, so as I said, CAP members um, represent about 90% of the production. There's another organization called CPAC, the Small Explorers and Producers Association of Canada. So, so that's how the associations work. But I, I want to clarify, as an association, we're not regulating the industry. We're basically an association that helps develop best practices, etc. The industry is regulated by the regulator. Here in Alberta, the Energy Resources Conservation Board. Um, I had some others up Saskatchewan. I think it's called the SER. And BC is the Oil and Gas Commission. So whether you're a member of CAP, whether you're a member of CPAC, or whether you're just an oil and gas company, you are regulated. All oil and gas companies in Alberta are required to register with the regulator. They're required to post a bond to show that they actually have the resources to, to actually carry out their activities. So, so again, I'm not familiar with who's on the blood reserves, but, and, oh, whether they're a CAP member or not, but they, they would follow the same regs. Thanks. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. We spoke a little bit about it at the table. Uh, and this is a personal opinion of yours I'm asking for. <laughs> <laughs> what is the wisdom in uh, doing a massive amount of fracking right at the headwaters of the supply, water supply for all of southern Alberta, um, almost all of southern Alberta, through the irrigation system and the river, and eventually Saskatchewan. If there were to happen a major mishap, we would see a catastrophe that we haven't seen before. Do you have any opinion about the wisdom in, in doing a, making a sieve out of the blood reserve? So, so I'm not again. I'm not familiar with the blood reserve or where it is. But, but first of all, we only explore for oil and gas where there is oil and gas, right? And we we, d we don't control where it is. That's Mother Nature or God or however you want to describe it. Put the natural gas where it is. Whether we're at the we're at the headwaters of a of a river or whether we're in the middle of a <clears throat> excuse me. Um, middle of boreal forest in Alberta or British Columbia, where they're on a landowner's land, we do it the same way. Again, we, we have practices that ensure that the fluids in the wellbore stay in the wellbore. We have regulations that ensure the same thing. Another question. Yeah, oh, thank you, uh, <laughs> Mr. Chair. Uh, my name is Joseph Natuk, and I, every time I come to this uh, lovely luncheon, I have something to say, regardless who the speaker is. Anyway, I, I, regarding CAP, I've worked with, with, with you folks for many years, and uh, 
in my former job as a, as a provincial employee, not here, but mm -hmm. other parts of Canada. Uh, one of the things that's always crossed my mind is, you know, we always talk about regulations. And, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think industry, and uh, I know you're not, you're not a regulator, you're just no. a representative uh, of an industry. Mm -hmm. But why don't they, I mean, why, why do we always have regulations? Why doesn't the industry have that kind of feeling that, well, you know what, we know what they are, so why don't we act accordingly? You know, we don't need this extra bureaucracy to tell us what, what if you're screwing up, which you, which you often, occasionally do, I guess, the industry does. Not you, but the industry does. So do you have an opinion on that? Why do we have, I know we've talked about self-regulation and we have a lot of that stuff going on, but do we really need that? Are you not a good, corp, uh, your, your members not a good corporate citizens to, uh, you know, kind of do their own thing without having to uh, being hit on the head every time because it's just totally frustrating for, you know, uh, and I appreciate what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I appreciate using your resources or the people you, that produce the resources, but it's, it's it's kind of, it blows me away. Is there, do you have an opinion on that? And yes. I think if you do, I'd like you to go towards the, you know, the, the positive, if you will, so we don't have to have you being told what to do or your industry? So, so yes, indeed. One, one of the things that CAP does, and one of the reasons we have this organization, is um, we develop through our members what we call best practices. We develop best practices for all aspects of our business, whether it's the drilling and production and hydraulic fracturing with regards to water use. I mean, a lot of these things that I talked about that uh, with regards to water use, doing the studies to find out where the water is, has been an industry initiative. One, one of the initiatives we've just engaged in is actually a, a, a risk to hydraulic fracturing. We, we're basically Basically, we want to take a look as a study, industry-funded, to see what are the risks to hydraulic fracturing. Now, having said all that, um, you still need a regulator. A regulator is like the cop. I mean, it would, you know, when I drove down here between Calgary and, and, uh, and Lethbridge, I went 110 for the most part. Um, if I'd left early and I knew there was no police in the road, I might have gone a little faster than 110, even though I know it's unsafe. So basically, you need a, you need a balance. Again, you need, you, need a, you need an association and an industry that basically is responsible, and I truly believe we are, and that's one of the reasons we have this association, but you also need strong regulation, and I think we've got that. Yeah, next question, please. Douglas Mitchell. Um, I appreciate your enlightening us to some extent. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that your projection seems to take no account of the increase in the use of renewable energy mm -hmm. and the economics. And sure. I have a specific question. Can you guarantee that you know when you fracture where that fracture is going mm -hmm. and who is responsible if the fracture does not go where it's supposed to go? Okay, so you, you've got three questions, and, and stay there, please, because I've got to make sure I don't forget any of them. So, so the first question was the projection. Now, the projection isn't our projection. It's the Energy um, International Energy Agency, and I showed you the North American one, and there's another one, uh, which is a world one I made reference to. And they're, they're both they're different in far as, insofar as the demand. That North American one, the demand's going up, I don't know, 20 or 30%. World demand, they think, is going to actually double by 2035. Those projections aren't ours. There are other People. So what they do is they look at the various forms of energy. They look at the economics of those energy. They look at the energy footprint of those energy. And they look at uh, the availability of it. So those are their forecasts. So, so you'll see that, and again, I don't want to go back to the slide, but 
you know, renewables increase, but they increase sort of at a similar proportion to oil and gas. Second question was, sorry. Regarding fracturing itself. Oh, yes, fracturing. Can, yeah, basically a couple of things. Um, you know, although there's a lot of horsepower there, there's basically, um, you know, I, I, I had to go through it pretty quickly. Um, typically, our fracks are going to go, boy, maybe maybe tens of meters in a horizontal direction and in a vertical direction, again, maybe tens of meters. And and the question is, is how do we know that? Well, we actually, and I didn't go through it here, we actually listen for it. What we do is we do something called micro-seismic. And again, don't want to get too technical, but what we essentially do is we, we use some other wells and we use surface indicators and we essentially listen for that. It sounds like high-tech Star Trek stuff. We actually listen for that rock to be fractured and we do a map. We do a map both in the plan view and in the 3D view so we do know where it goes. And you had a third question that I've forgotten. Maybe you can help me. There was three. Okay, maybe we'll go on to the next questioner because I see there's lots of folks here. Um, Mark Nelson, um, what are the other chemicals you're using? in the fracturing fluid, and where does the gas come from in the rock, and how do you know it's there? Okay, fair enough. The, the chemicals we're using, um, I guess you probably couldn't really read this slide. The, most of the chemicals, like I said, there's a, there's a biocide, like a chlorine-type thing. There's a surfactant to make the water slippery. Um, sometimes we'll use a little bit of acid to, if, in case there's calcium carbonate that we need to, 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 um, to explore, uh, sorry, to, uh, to, to break the rock. So if you're interested in lists of chemicals, um, those of you that read the Calgary Herald might have seen just a couple of days ago, um, uh, John Manzoni from Talisman saying that they support the, uh, you know, support the disclosure of chemicals. Our members also support the disclosure of chemicals. Each well is going to be a little bit different. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you look at Talisman USA's website, they've actually got a list of the chemicals they use. And sorry, second question. Where does the gas come from in the rock, and how do you know what's there? Okay, where does it come from? Well, again, I had to go kind of quickly, but gas is basically comes from organic decay. I mean, those of you that are agricultural people know that if something dies, you get sort of, you know, gas coming from it. So it, it tends to be, it's not dinosaurs like we tell the little kids. It's basically microorganisms. It's, it's algae, it's plankton, that type of stuff. So that's where it was originally formed. It'll continue to, to migrate upwards over millions of years till it finds a place that it has to stop, Okay. So in the old days, what we used to do is we used to look for hills because that, they tended to be these what we call anticlines, and that's where it stopped. We use a technique that I can tell you a little bit more about after called seismic techniques. So what we do is we send a, we send a noise down through several layers of rock, time how long it comes to come back to surface, and if you think about it, sound goes through fluid at a different rate than it goes through solid rock. So we can get a sense of whether there's fluid in that rock. That's one of the techniques we use. The other thing is, is if you're looking for oil, you always look for where there's already some. So that's part of it. And again, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you in more detail after, if you'd like. My name is Van Christou. I uh, was glad to hear you refer to the uh, care that you're taking with our aquifers mm -hmm. in Western Canada. Mm -hmm. The question I have is very simple. Do you have accurate maps of the aquifers of Western Canada? And if you don't have, 
Then do you just find it out after disasters occur? No, that's no. I, I, again, whether there's aquifers or not, um, the, the the process is the same. So there are. It's as far as the uh, the mapping of aquifers. You're correct. It varies across both provinces how much information we know. But what we do know is again, geology has a certain amount of consistency. If and you know, again, I, I hope there's some agricultural folks here. Um, you you tend to drill a certain depth to get fresh water, and you can be a little bit saline for your cattle, correct? If you go too deep, that water is going to be salty, whether you're in Alberta or B.C. So if you case down to 650 meters, which is generally the, the regulation in, Alberta, in, in B.C., you have to case there, you're going to basically be below any freshwater aquifer. And did you have a second question? Good. I'm only good for one. My brain doesn't work for two. Apologize. Go ahead, please. Uh, my name is Tom Kane, and um, just a comment before I ask you one question. Um, the diagram where you, ref- you brought back up several times in your slides, that balance one that yep. had the uh, en- economy, Energy economy environment, environment. Yep. Yep. that looks too tidy to me, and it <laughs> seems to be um, terribly mistaken. Okay. Uh, I saw a different diagram with some of the same factors in it last week when I was in Edmonton visiting uh, a group of uh, people who are in charge of the document for the city of Edmonton called The Way We Green. Okay. And they put the environment as the broadest circle, and the other circles are inside that. Okay. That totally changes. You've got the economy up on the top, and you've got the environment on the side and energy on the side. It doesn't work that way. We are a part of the environment, and your industry is polluting it all over the world. And you come along and tell us this afternoon that uh, really we should trust the regulators. You've got such a fine record. Um, is, is there a question? Didn't listen. The question is, Mike Brewsthead couldn't come today. Okay. You didn't listen to his talk. I have, no, I wasn't able to hear his. I'm sorry you, you didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. Or Maud Barlow's talk last week. I heard mm-hmm. them both. Mm-hmm. Mike brought, uh, sent with me a bottle of the water that's been tested on his farm, just beside the Old Man River, just south of Lethbridge, that's where the blood reserve is. Um, he would like you to have a taste of this. If you trust the regulators so much, you would be happy to drink his drinking water, mm-hmm. which a company has said is so polluted he ought not to drink it. The Energy Resources Confer- Conservation Board has not uh, come and asked to have a taste of his water. His question would be, what scientific studies have been done to lead you to believe that fracking is safe and that something got into his drinking water? Benzene, chloride, and uranium. Benzene doesn't, isn't in southern Alberta all over the place. How did it get in his water? So he would like to, he'd like to ask you several questions in one. My question is, what scientific studies have been done to show that what you're talking about is really safe? Because we couldn't find any. And Maud Barlow, who knows her way around the water topic and uh, stick-handled things at the United Nations on water, she said in her talk that she'd like to have a moratorium on fracking until studies are done. Do you have any studies? And the final thing would be maybe you'd offer, since you're outside of it, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers might offer Mike some independent analysis of what happened to the water on his reserve. That would be a nice gesture from the Canadian Association for uh, Petroleum Producers. Offer him some scientific help to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. That's just a thing you might do as a public relations job. 
But his question would be, what science is there behind that? And why didn't you do more science before you started all of this all over the place? Okay, lots of questions in there. Um, so, so basically, with regards to my Venn diagram, you're right, it's tidy, it's a presentation. Well, did, did you um, want to eat, uh, have a drink of his water? Uh, no, thank you. Um, it, basically, if you look at the, at the, uh, the Venn diagram, I, I'd be quite happy to put the, the uh, energy, or sorry, the environment on top, the energy. That the, the purpose isn't actually that uh, one takes precedence over the other. Again, it's the intersection of the three of them that's important, and that's what informs good public policy, and that's why I'm glad to see a, an organization like SACPA, if that's how, if I'm okay to say it that way, um, in, have policy debates. Now, with regards to um, what's happening on the blood reserve, obviously I, I don't know what's happening on the blood reserve. I'm not familiar with that. Um, with regards to water, do I believe that we are not impacting water? Yes, I do. And not only do I, but I, I think I mentioned a statistic um, uh, from uh, the RCB. Bob Curran from the RCB was quoted in the, the Calgary Herald two weeks ago saying that there's 167, there have been, excuse me, 167,000 fracks in Alberta and there are no documented cases of fracking interfering with hydraulic aquifers. So that's, that's basically a statistic. There's that one now, but they haven't. There's one now on the blood reserve, and they haven't responded to Mike's letters. So, so again, it, it wouldn't be appropriate for, for me to suggest why that water may or may not be contaminated. That's really something for Mr. Bruce had to work with the regulator and with the companies. There are a number, um, again, there are a number of ways that water can become contaminated. What I'm suggesting is that it's unlikely that it's from the oil and gas development. I disagree. Okay. Bonnie May. Hi. It, this is also about water sure. regulations. How close to somebody's water well or house should a drill operation be? Yeah, fair enough. Um, basically, I'm more familiar, with, as I mentioned, I'm the manager of BC operations, so I'm more familiar with BC regulations than Alberta. And um, basically, in, in the way it works in British Columbia is, uh, and it's similar in Alberta, prior, prior to drilling a well, actually prior to engaging in any activities, we're, we, we consult with the, with the landowners. We're required to consult with the landowners. During that consultation process, if the landowner raises their hand and says, I've got a, I've got a water well, we're required to keep a, a distance from that water well. I'm sorry, I don't recall exactly what that distance is. It's, it's a few hundred meters, but it is regulated, and I don't have the uh, regulations. But we, if you really want, um, I can give you my card after and get it to you because I, I just don't have the number in my head. But there is a regulated distance, and it's a few hundred meters from your, from your water well. Hi, Deb Hi. Jarvie. Thank you for coming and speaking to us today. Um, I want to just pick up on the comment you made that there's probably about 100 years' worth of um, natural, gas. natural gas available mm -hmm. through these extraction processes. Mm -hmm. And um, while, yes, the world needs its energy, if there is going to be contamination that then could take thousands of years for aquifer um, um, to be recharged and to clean itself out, then I'll go back to the question you said earlier, so what? It all comes back to that. So what I'm asking, not to attack the industry, mm -hmm. but... Because CAP is holding so many large CAP companies with capital market caps of $5 billion plus, and that's at the low end, what's the chance of CAP being the champion for Canada and maybe internationally to take some of that market capitalization and shift it to renewable energy technologies instead of having a fight between the two? If we only have 100 years left and we can go to other types, would CAP ever consider that? 
So when it comes to renewable energy technologies, I mean, you saw the you saw the chart, and again, that's not something we pre we prepared. That somebody else somebody else prepared that. So so what's happening with with other technologies, and they're not our technologies. Our our members are very good at finding oil and gas, and in fact. We're good at it, and we focus on that, and that's one of the reasons why we've gone in the last 10 years from a 20- or 30-year supply of natural gas to a 100-year supply of natural gas. Now, the, there, there are market forces. I mean, obviously, somebody must be finding windmills profitable. I saw a pile of them on the way down here, uh, similarly with solar energy. So, so basically, some of our members are looking at that type of thing. I know Shell is looking at some. I believe Talisman is looking at some. But we don't get involved in our members' commercial operations. Those that choose to, if, if there's if there's basically opportunity, our members see opportunity for unconventional, excuse me, for uh, for alternative energy sources, they get involved in that business. Good afternoon, Good afternoon. Uh, Paulette Fox. Uh, my question is uh, in regards to um, duty to consult with First Nations. Sure. Um, as an engineer, maybe this is something uh, that you have not so much to speak to, mm -hmm. but I was curious in your knowledge if there's um, any situation that you're aware of. Um, just a little bit of background. The duty to consult on behalf of the government mm -hmm. falls to the companies, which then falls to environmental consultants. Is that correct? Does it generally go in that flow? My, my understanding, and it's based in British Columbia, is that the duty to consult is actually a government duty to consult with First Nations. Correct. So the, the way the government generally executes that cons consultation duty is often through the regulator. So in other words, when a, when a company makes an application, they make that application to the regulator, and through the regulator, the regulator consults with with the First Nations community. Now, as part of that consultation, they will bring in whatever expertise they need, and that could be environmental consultants. It could be company representatives. I, again, that's that's what I'm familiar with in British Columbia. I believe it's not that different in Alberta, if not the same. Okay, so being um, a provision of, of the Constitution, mm -hmm. in your knowledge, is there any cases where in that duty to consult, First Nations have not wanted the development, but the development went ahead anyways. Like, if, if that's sort of the, the general case, is there any cases like anomalies where they have not wanted it and it has not gone ahead? I, I honestly don't know. Sorry. Okay. I, I just described my knowledge of the duty to consult. Um, we do, I mean, what I can say is there are a number of uh, developments in First Nations communities. Um, as industry, we actually work, um, the group I work with, we work with Treaty 8 in, in northeastern BC. So um, you must know um, a few folks. We must know some similar, you know, within, you know, working from a background myself. I, uh, I'm a chemist. Mm -hmm. I understand the the. the bitumen process, um, but I, I was just curious if, if that, like in BC, there are impact benefits agreements, correct? There are I, some, yes. Yeah. In Alberta, there are zero, mm -hmm. and I know that for many First Nations, the, the degradation of their traditional territories has reached beyond, you know, 100 years, like in 100 years, they will not be restored, mm -hmm. and the plans that are in place do not protect medicines and traditional uses of roots or even water sources like wetlands. So these are disappearing, and, you know, as a member of, of, of CAP, I can, I can see how, you know, pushing through territories is necessary to 
complete projects, but at the same time, as a constitutional provision, I don't think that it's meeting the needs of First Nations peoples. So, so just to clarify, you know, I can't speak to specific examples, but again, in the, in, you know, I'm very familiar in BC, and if I had Treaty 8 folks, they would be the first ones to admit it doesn't always work perfectly. However, with regards, we, do, we have done traditional land use studies. When we do an application, they will often identify which sites are of spiritual significance or cultural significance, and those sites, as part of the application process, we mitigate, we we avoid those sites. So that dialogue, I wouldn't want to suggest that that dialogue isn't going on. It is. Whether it's going on perfectly in all areas, I can't speak to that. At the same time, too, I think with traditional land use studies, it, it's a little bit of a misconception because I think every other um, species or race is allowed to adapt, correct? Adaptation, that was Darwin's theory. We, we all move forward in, in adaptation. So in the case of my generation, okay, I might look at a site that wasn't 100 years ago designated as spiritual, but I have a significant spiritual connection there, and I bring my family there, and I bring my relatives there, and, you know, we pay homage if that's the thing. So it's not considering in the future, like there ought to be future land use studies. Where do you want, where do you see your community in 100 years, given the, the, the amount of development? Because I think trying to protect sites in situ is taking the context of cultural, First Nations cultural, out of context. Thank you for your presentation. I've got a, a water question, and we had some interesting discussions at our table during sure. lunch. Good. And that had to, to do with the fact that when the water comes back up after the fracking yeah. process, and you mentioned that it's very salty. Uh, yes. And, and the gentleman beside me had said that in Edmonton, uh, it wasn't so salty in some places, they had to use PVC. Uh, are you familiar with, with what, what, what happens when that's really salty, recognizing that that concrete can erode or break up? And how often is that salt sure. issue addressed? So, so, so you're right. Um, basically, the water that comes back up is salty. And the reason it's salty, again, if you go back to my original explanation, and it, it is old. It, essentially, what you're using, you're talking what they call paleo seas, so seas from hundreds of million years ago. So the, there's, there's often uh, water associated with oil and gas production, and that water is extremely salty. So basically, what happens when it, when it comes back up to surface? Um, uh, in the case of when we're doing fracturing, we, we reuse as much as we can. But industry has been handling large volumes of salt water for a number of years, up, up in the Edmonton area, in fact. So, so basically what we do with our water, there's a few things we can do with it. One of them is we can actually use water to help enhance oil pr production. So in other words, we use what's called a water flood or enhanced oil recovery, where we re-inject it into the formation and essentially push the oil out to the, to the producing well. So we're re-injecting it. The other thing we do when that's not possible is we, we inject the water back into deep saline aquifers. So these are aquifers similar to the depths of the oil, the oil field. You're asking about um, the fact that it's salty and corrosive. Well, we actually use materials that it, it take into account the fact that it is salty and corrosive. Sometimes what we'll do is we, we won't, sometimes we'll use PVC pipe. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll have lined, lined steel pipe. So again, as an industry, we've been handling it for a long time. I, again, and it's strongly regulated as well. Okay, thanks. My name is Ron Renwick, and I'd like to thank you for your presentation. And I would also like to compliment your industry on the progress you've made over the years. Um, and we all here are benefiting from the oil and gas production that you've developed and achieved. 
And it's rather ironic where, why we are able to enjoy these benefits but are so critical of your industry. And it would seem to be the responsibility of CAP. Like, why do you think you're drawing so much fire on this criticism and really doing a poor job of defending yourself? That's a, that's a fair question. Um, I, I accept that question. I accept all the questions. That's a fair question. A couple of things. We were talking about this just a little bit here at lunch. And, um, you, know, you know, I've explained that, you know, hydraulic fracturing has been used for 50 years. And, you know, we've been doing it. And most people haven't been aware of we've been doing it, most of your average public. A couple of things have happened. You know, uh, you know suddenly or, <coughs> excuse me, relatively suddenly, governments are talking about instead of, you, you know, those of you that read, uh, you know, the end of oil or the peak oil syndrome, that type of thing. We've gone from talking about you know running out of oil, the OPEC crisis, to gee, we've got lots of it. In fact, we've got a hundred years of natural gas supply. So public attention has moved towards energy. The other thing that's happened is public attention has moved towards water. So a lot of the, the things that we've been doing in the past, basically, the public hasn't been interested in. With regards to communication, yeah, we get it. Um, basically, we haven't done that particularly good a job at communicating. And part of it is because as an industry, we go, well, we've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing it safely, environmentally sound. We, we're well-regulated. Why are you suddenly interested? So part of what we're trying to do, and again, I really appreciate a forum like this, is to get out to explain it. So I, I accept that criticism. Another question, or are we done? One more question. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I, uh, Joseph Natuk again. Oh, I just hi. wanted to follow up the previous uh, sure. the First Nations uh, comments regarding uh, duty to consult. Cons yeah. I, I think there's a lot more to it than, than, than isn't happening. Like, for example, meaningful duty to consult. And I think there's a big difference between consulting and really listening. So just keep that in mind. I think there's a, there's a horrendous difference. And I've been doing this for many years, and I think that this component that's missing, listen. Thank you. Thank you. And, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, it, um, consultation has to be meaningful, and that's part of the discussions we're having with Treaty 8 right now is, is how we engage in meaningful discussion. Okay. Let's give a big round of applause to Steve Dunk for an interesting presentation and a stimulating discussion. We hope this will foster some further consideration about how we should respond to uh, the oil and gas industry in Alberta, which is obviously a prime mover and shaker. Thank you for your attendance, and enjoy your afternoon.